Registrations are now open for the Bioceuticals Internship Program, commencing in December 2018. If you think you've got what it takes to thrive in an intense program designed to expose you to all facets of the complementary medicine industry, you should apply now. For more information, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today from Amsterdam is Dr. Jessica Eunice. She's a microbiome science liaison at Winclove Probiotics in Amsterdam. She combines expertise in the human microbiomes and probiotics with a strong personal interest in vulnerable patient populations and making the microbiome accessible and understandable for healthcare professionals. One of her efforts to increase awareness and education about the importance of microbes resulted in womenandtheirmicrobes.com, an annual scientific conference which facilitates awareness and communication of high quality research between scientific, academic and medical and industry stakeholders. Welcome to FX Medicine, Jessica, for the first of a series of uh, podcasts on the human microbiota. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. To introduce you to our audience, could you take us through a little bit of your career path and indeed what interested you in first becoming a PhD, where you took that, and where you've gone since then? So I started off doing kinesiology in my bachelor, and I became fascinated with the human body. I wanted to go to medicine from that, very inspirational for myself, and I realized doctors didn't know enough about food, so I did a (laughs) master's in nutrition after that. From there, I I became in love with the microbiome and probiotics, and I was offered a PhD to do that in the Netherlands. So I crossed the ocean from Canada, came over to the Netherlands, and that's how it all started. From there, I I sort of came into contact with Winklow Probiotics, a couple of scientific conferences. Uh, We ended up finding each other when I finished my studies, and I've been working there ever since, so that's about three years now. So that's been my journey a little bit from academics into industry and also the reason why I did a PhD. Well, I guess the first question I have to ask is going from Canada to the Netherlands. What about the language barrier? A lot of Dutch people speak English and very good English, Ah. so it wasn't too challenging. Right. But I I must say I have learned Dutch. My husband is also Dutch, so... uh, it's good to penetrate the culture a little bit more through language. Gotcha. So today we're going to be talking about the vaginal microbiota, um, and I guess on a rather intimate level, level, but I guess first, where do vaginal microorganisms come from? We, there's this pervading theory about that they you know, populate the bowel and then move forward, but there's a lot of difference between the bowel microbiota and the vaginal microbiota as well. Certainly there is, and I'm really happy you brought that point up, Andrew. To answer that question, I think the, we have to start looking at the two different niches. So the gut microbiota has multiple different niches within the gut, whereas the vaginal niche is extremely uh, dynamic, it's isolated, it has its own unique function. And I would say that the majority of the scientific literature does indicate that the gastrointestinal tract can be 
an extra vaginal reservoir for these organisms. But it's also worth mentioning that uh, the bladder can also potentially uh, seed the vaginal microbiota. Um, sexual intercourse also has an effect, um, so your sexual partner. Mm. The oral microbiota has also been linked uh, to the vaginal composition. But coming back to your question, I think it really plays a role, the, the, the host really plays a role here in determining what species stay and what they do. Right. So I, I guess the first question in, in my head there is when we're talking about sexual partners influencing the microbiota, you know, there's the common notion of, um, you know, after sex, you know, void, try and void so to prevent any ascending urinary tract infection from irritation and stuff like that. There was also the issue many years ago about uh, ladies with recurrent thrush and um, they they used to treat, forgive me, they used to call it a ping pong infection. So they'd, they'd treat both mm-hmm. the lady and the partner. That's gone out of fashion and they just tend to ignore the partner now and treat the, the lady who has the issue. And I don't know why that is if it's such an issue. I think there's a couple of things that play a role there. First of all, diagnosing correctly the type of infection that a woman has is Ah, very challenging. ah, The point of care diagnostic tests that we have are, yeah, poor to say the least. I mean, to be honest, things haven't changed in 50 years, so that's a little bit discouraging. It's hard to differentiate without culture, and you have to wait 24, 48 hours for a culture result. Um, candidiasis infection from a bacterial vaginosis infection from, um, you know, aerobic vaginitis. So I think diagnosis is a key part of that. Secondly, the woman or the man, depending on which end you're coming from, has to convince their partner also to uh-huh. accept and undergo treatment. Of course. So, you know, there's, there's multiple things that go in play there, but I think if it would be possible, w- there is data that shows that partners can be these extravaginal reservoirs for each other, there's a lot of species overlap between, for example, the vaginal and the seminal or penile microbiomes in shared sexual partners. So yeah. this is an important point you bring up. It makes sense. Like I've, um, I remember, I think I wrote an article. I certainly read an article regarding, you know, the the sharing of microbiota between pets and indeed families. Like if you've got um, in, in a familial environment, we will tend to share more of the strain than the same, you know, gen- genetic offspring, if you like, that are living distally from us, um, who may or may not have the same dietary intake. I guess it makes sense when the, you've got a partner with intimate sharing of, of um, microbes. There's going to be similarities, but of course, there's going to be differences as well because of the different types of acid or alkali environments that they're, they're living in. Certainly. I think it's related more to the life cycle of the woman where she is in her phase of menstruation, reproduction, uh, menopause, uh, etc. Can I just go back with regards to this seeding of the microorganisms, even from birth, um, the enteromammary pathway? Where's that concept sitting at now? The enteromammary pathway is an interesting one because there's a lot of suggestive data where we think we know it's been established, but it's not been definitively shown. I'm of the opinion that the scientific logic makes sense that the gut, the dendritic cells in the gut select certain um, microorganisms, deposit them in the breast milk, and that is then transferred to the baby or the infant or the neonate, depending on, well, I guess it wouldn't be a neonate if they're already breastfeeding, but uh, breast milk is an interesting one, Andrew. We think that the the gut selects certain organisms 
uh, via dendritic cells and the immune system, and then deposits those in breast milk. So there's not very conclusive data in terms of the proof of how these bacteria travel throughout the body, Mm. but we can track the same organisms from the mother's gut into breast milk in the infant gut and so forth. So there is some strong associations, but even stronger than that perhaps is the microbial colonization of the uterus, the placenta, you know, the amniotic fluid during pregnancy that sort of prime the fetus to be tolerant to bacteria after birth. Um, And we see that also in the meconium. I mean, that's, that's the strongest piece of evidence we have that gut colonization of the infant starts in utero. So there are live bacteria in the myconium? So yes, there are there are live bacteria in myconium and the the analysis of the microbiota shows low species diversity. It's usually dominated by streptococci and some unclassified species of enterobacteriaceae. So your your E. coli, your lactobacilli, your enterobacter and things like this. Mm-hmm. And of course, bifidobacteria are definitely found in the myconium as early I think as three days, um, some of the data that I'm aware of. And this suggests, again, that the infant gut is immediately colonized within, yeah, birth, or within the uterus. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. So, so you know, the, the, um, the previous theory was basically that the baby was smothered with the, the vaginal microbiota during birth from the birth canal. Is that still the pervading theory of colonization? of the, the infant gut? I would say the literature is divided on this one, Andrew, but mm. it's certainly interesting to hypothesize and sort of pick a side. And I might decide I prefer to pick is that, yes, the infant is sort of swathed in the vaginal microbes if the woman has a vaginal delivery. And these, you know, um, colonize the skin, they'll colonize the oral cavity, they'll colonize eventually the gut. And each niche, of course, selects which organisms will stay and colonize and develop. Um, And we also see differences between C-section infants compared to vaginal delivery. But yeah, this is... This is an accepted route of colonization for the infant, absolutely. Yeah, and and I, I guess I've got to make the point. I know that Caesar cesarean sections are, you know, way overutilized, and there's a there's real um, ethical issues r- around this, but um, convenience issues. But um, let's say a, a mother had frequent bouts of um, bacterial vaginosis, or even let's go one step further. What about herpes? Uh, and the obstetrician preferred in this instance to um, to give the mother a C-section so that the baby wasn't exposed to that infectious agent during birth. Is there any data um, or experience even to show that that um, prevents the infant from being f- infected from these microbiota? Um, I'm not certain of data other than comparing vaginal birth to C-section birth, which is, I imagine, what you're asking. Yeah. But I also want to point out that there is a difference between an induced C-section and an emergency C-section. So the woman might already go through some sort of, some period of her labor, some part of it. And if you do a C-section after that, then the hormone cascade, the microbiome changes have already started to occur. So body-wide, basically, the mother's oral cavity, her gastrointestinal tract, her vaginal microbiome, they all change during pregnancy. But if you do an elective C-section, then that last sort of piece doesn't per se 
happen. Yeah. So it, it's, it would be more advantageous, if possible, of course, to allow the mother to go through a little bit of the labor. But again, that's that's a risk assessment that each um, clinician and, and mother has to take into account. Huh? Mm. So let's talk then about more about the vaginal microbiota. How's it organized? Because I've got to say, the more I learn about this, the more confused I'm getting, <laughs> particularly one species, which I'll ask about a little bit later. But, you know, with regards to, let's talk about biofilms, for instance. Yeah, so you've, you've I think you've had a podcast already on biofilms, so I won't really go too much into detail on the general aspect, but more on the vaginal biofilm aspect. And that's actually what I did a little bit of my doctorate work on so it's a ah. it's a sort of a love child of mine yeah <laughs> um and if we describe a biofilm it's basically a community of microorganisms that are adhering to some sort of a surface right and in the case of the vagina they're actually on the mucosal layer that is attached and adhered to the epithelial layer of cells so in a normal situation an asymptomatic woman who you could call healthy um tends to have a very loose vaginal biofilm, and it tends to be dominated more by lactobacilli or lactic acid-producing bacteria. Whereas a woman with, for example, bacterial vaginosis, she would tend to have a rather very thick, adherent biofilm um, that also can degrade the mucus and come into a bit more contact with the epithelial layer. So there is quite a difference in the biofilm uh, the nature of the biofilm in the vagina of a healthy woman or an asymptomatic woman compared to a woman with dysbiosis or bacterial vaginosis, for example. Can I ask a potentially really silly question? Uh, a lecturer, a naturopathic lecturer, uh, and I were discussing what is a biofilm compared to something like the glycocalyx. Is there a difference or is it just, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, is a dandelion a herb or a weed? Um, you know, it depends who you are. If you're a gardener, it's a weed. If you're a herbalist, it's a herb. Um, so is there a difference in biofilms regarding pathogens versus commensals, or is it just a term? So the glycocalyx, as you just said, Andrew, is, is more of a, a, the slime of the, um, the gut. Uh, some people also consider it the, the, the coating surrounding certain epithelial cells. Yep. Whereas a biofilm is sort of the community, the, the geospatial architecture of the microbiome. So that's the sort of apartment building where they all live in. Yeah. So you have your, your, your microbes, and then you have your, the house that's established, the matrix that's around them, and that could be composed of mucins, that could be composed of extracellular DNA, uh, fibrils, all sorts of things. So, so the glycocalyx is produced by us as a fence, basically, to keep them out, keep them on the, good, on the, you know, the outside of the fence and talk to them through that fence, whereas a biofilm is created by them to survive the, the, um, you know, the harsh environment of the gut. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, and in the vagina, it operates in a similar way. So as you said, if you want to think about it as a fence, then yeah, the, the biofilm in a way, or it's actually the mucus layer, would more prevent uh, certain organisms from coming into contact with the cells that could have a pro-inflammatory effect, for example. Yep. Um, and it also, you can see even within uh, discharge, you know, the, the, the normal 
sloughing off of cells and, and uh, biomaterial from the vagina. Sometimes there are really thick biofilms there, and that's more indicative of an infection. But that's the natural sort of self-cleansing mechanism of the vagina. So there's a couple of ways that the vagina sort of controls and the host controls the type of biofilm. But mm-hmm. again, it's the, it's a synergistic relationship. Yeah. So if you look at the estrogen that's produced within the vaginal environment that stimulates glucose and also the vaginal cells produce their own amylases because lactobacilli cannot actually digest glycogen themselves. They have to digest derivatives and metabolites of glycogen. Ah. Uh-huh. So yeah. there's a really strong host component in selecting not only the organisms that are there, but how they're assembled within the biofilm. Right. So what, therefore, are the difference between, you know, commensals and the, I've spoken about this before, the pathobionts, those things that are good but could be bad, um, versus even true pathogens? And then you've got other things like parasites. You know, what does this mean um, for the normal vaginal microbiota, and I guess, again, on the second sort of um, hand, um, for diagnosis and treatment of disease? Mm-hmm. Very good point. We have the commensals on the one hand, and we have sort of the extreme other end, the pathogens, your, your true pathogens, your parasites, and in the organisms that will cause disease if they're present, so fulfilling conscious postulates, so to say. Yep. And then in the middle, you sort of have your pathobionts or your potentially pathogenic microorganisms. And I would say the difference between a commensal and a pathobiont would really be the presence of virulence factors uh, and also host vulnerability. And you could have, for example, uh, Gardnerella vaginalis, and he's considered, or this organism is considered a pathobiont. You have Candida subspecies, um, Prevotella, things like this. Yep. Whereas we consider the commensals to be mostly lactobacilli, so lactobacillus crispatus, ginsenii, inners, and so forth. But inners is very interesting to me. Um, can that be a pathobiont? The jury is out on this one. And right. if I have to be controversial on the air, I would say it's a pathobiont in my own opinion. Yeah. The data can support both ways, but to me, it's more suggestive that it's a really highly unusual suspect in the onset and transition between health and dysbiosis in the vagina. And it's also been shown to be, for example, um, offering less protection during vaginal dysbiosis and sexually transmitted infections. It's potentially a risk factor if it's colonizing the vagina during pregnancy and things like this. Oh, really? If you're interested, we can chat. Yeah. Yeah, we wow. can chat a bit more about some of the small characteristics, but uh, we could do a whole podcast on inners just yeah, on its own. I know. <laughs> Moira Bradfield and I were talking about this, and the papers that she was sending me after, I was just tearing my hair out. What little I have left, because um, uh, I was, you know, what I thought I knew about it, I was just throwing away. But to me, is this then going for that point, or, or um, supporting the point that you spoke about regarding host resilience? Is this, is this really something that takes advantage of terrain? Yes. Yes, it does. And if we look at sort of the genome, just to jump in now that we're already on this track, yeah. lactobacillus inners has a very uniquely small genome. It's unusually small for lactobacilli, which actually does suggest on an ecological level that it's either a symbiotic or has a more parasitic host-dependent lifestyle. 
because it doesn't it, it has some highly conserved genes in other words it can only make a set it, it, it's a one trick pony or a multiple trick pony yeah but not as versatile as the rest of the other lactobacilli for example so it adheres for example very strongly to vaginal epithelial cells there's great persistence there but what it does further than that um things that suggest that it might be more of a pathobiont it only produces l-lactic acid so it can be in a in a high vaginal pH or a low vaginal pH. It has very specific nutrient requirements, which it either produces itself or it does it through crossfeeding uh, with other organisms. It's actually the only lactobacilli species known thus far or published that encodes a pore-forming cytotoxic, um, a cytolytic, sorry, toxin, which means that it can punch holes through membranes of other cells. Whoa. Which is usually a pathogenic trait, but again, whether it's upregulated or downregulated depends on the environment and epigenetics and so forth. So there's there's some really unusual characteristics in inners. Yeah, but we do find it in asymptomatic women. Uh, the, of course, the prevalence differs between different populations. Uh, so one one more interesting thing from the epidemiology, Andrew, is that we've found that. Uh, lactobacillus crispatus and inners are generally tend to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. So you find one dominating or the other dominating, uh, but never okay. both together. Yeah. And we don't really per se understand this. Um, and there's a lot of people that are working on it um, all around the world, but it, it, it's also potentially troubling if they can go between each other. If your vaginal microbiome is dominated by inners, it seems to offer less protection against the transition to bacterial vaginosis, for example, or dysbiosis or sexually transmitted infections. So we're not sure what it means. Uh, my personal opinion is that it's a transitional organism that can become a pathobiont or at least part of potentially the pathogenic Given storm. Given the terrain. Yeah. But yes, but that has to be still definitively demonstrated. Right. So maybe this is where I got previously confused. I was under the impression that um, there was a, a temporal shift, uh, basically that uh, almost like a relay team, that the eners passed the baton to the crispatus in setting up a normal micro or a recovery, a recovering vaginal microbiota. Um, that the eners went in there first, set up the set up house, and then handed over the baton to the crispatus. But what you're saying is that might not be the case; that it actually might hand over the baton to an infectious agent, given that there's poor um, resilience in that tissue. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes and no. Um, what you're saying just now suggests it goes from either one end or the other end of the spectrum, and mm. I was only speaking of the the infectious end of the spectrum. But it could be the case mm. that it actually does also allow crispatus to redominate. If, if within ec ecology, you know, there's a lot of symbiosis and there's a lot of sort of goodwill, that could make sense, yeah. but I'm not, I'm not certain about that. And so what about instead of giving lactobacillus eners because of that potential bad effect, that we shouldn't be using that and instead we should be favouring the use of other organisms, including the lactobacillus crispatus, plus maybe some prebiotics to help the good guys to grow? or some fibers or something like that to dampen, you know, inflammatory processes that might favor infections. Would that make sense or are we not there yet? No, we're definitely there. And that's, that's sort of the general strategy behind administration of probiotics for vaginal infections. Uh, okay. And there, I think I would really caution, I mean, 
all of these effects, all of these mechanisms of action are really strain-specific. So we could talk about crispat, lactobacillus crispatus, but this is the the subspecies. So yeah. there are multiple strains within yeah. that subspecies, and some can, for example, be isolated from a woman who has um, uh, bacterial vaginosis. So does that particular crispatus strain have the correct characteristics? Are the correct genes turned on? Um, right. Has it evolved to only work within or only survive and colonize within a bacterial vaginosis state, or can it also revert back to a more healthy state? So this is why understanding the strains that are in a probiotic product and their mechanisms of action within the various indications that the product is being used for is essential. It's essential. Yeah. Um, I guess expanding on that, you know, when we talk about probiotics, we talk about does it work or not? You know, is it good enough or not? But there's other examples, for instance, E. coli. Uh, and we've got at, on the one far spectrum, the enterotoxic E. coli. And then on the other hand, way or way, we've got the probiotic E. coli. And of course, E. coli is one of the major um, inhabitants of the human gut. So you've got a, a vast spectrum there. Mostly, you know, we think about, as I said, you know, the good guys just being good enough or not. But then mm-hmm. you've got this vast difference. Could lactobacillus enas be this kind of like an E. coli? You've got good and or bad, you know, two ends of the spectrum rather than good enough or not. You could be right there. I mean, it's interesting that humans are humans are kind of a weird animal or mammal because we're one of the only mammals that's really dominated by lactobacilli in our vagina. So right. are we kind of a red herring among the mammals, yeah. maybe. We we are definitely an exception, but it's clear from ecology and sort of the evolutionary aspects of things that we have evolved, we've co-evolved with lactobacilli. So that would suggest that there is a synergistic relationship. But, I mean, you mentioned E. coli and sort of the, the spectrum of extreme disease or diarrhea-causing organisms to... You know, therapeutic agent. A very innocuous therapeutic agent yeah. that is helpful. So... Again, this this strengthens and underscores my point about the strain specificity. And I think that's something that's a little bit lost every once in a while when you think about probiotics. One probiotic strain that might be a lactobacillus acidophilus or a rhamnosus is not the same as another one. I certainly understand that strain specificity is important, absolutely, absolutely for scientific replication of studies and and to determine the the um, characteristics of that organism compared to one right next door, which may or may not have the same attributes, which we might favour. But then we have to make sure that we have those attributes. That sorry, forgive me, that it has all of the attributes that we favour. Because we're now questioning yep. what we previously considered a probiotic. <laughs> you know, it's like, we better be mm-hmm. damn sure about what we want. I think there, if, if I may offer, Andrew, an, another way to look at it, we should be thinking in mechanisms of action and function. It's not about structure. Structure determines function to a certain extent. Yeah. But function is the ultimate goal we're looking for. So is the vagina asymptomatic? Is the woman at risk for a sexually transmitted infection because of the type of organisms and what they're doing in her vagina? Is she more at risk for preterm labor because there is X organism there? Right. Yes, no. Yep. Depends on 
what organism it is. And again, as you said, sort of the landscape, the, the host vulnerability. So there are a lot of women who are colonized, pregnant women who are colonized with group B strep. Yep. The infant might not get sick from it, but he might yeah. or she might. So it, it, it's context. And there I would suggest that we think about it more on the level of a mechanism of action that's desirable for a particular health outcome that fits within that patient profile, the clinical need or um, situation that the patient's in. So if, if there's a high domination of candida within a woman's vagina and you do a pH test, that's not really going to tell you much in terms of diagnosis, but mm. perhaps you can identify it from discharge and things like that. But once you know anyways that there's a domination of candida species, yeah. then your your brain should start to click, hey, okay, there's an immunocompromised situation here, which has allowed the overgrowth of candida. I have to think also about the nutritional environment. I have to think potentially are there other um, sources of candida throughout the body. Deficient nutritional deficiencies. Can co-dominate. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. there you're not per se looking just for strains that have evidence, but also you want to try and match the mechanisms of action from strains with evidence to the various niches and indications. And that's a challenge. The, the science from industry hasn't caught up there yet. And I, I personally think that's because diagnostics have also not been really pushed and developed as much as they should be. Can I ask a question about Mobiluncus? What's the clinical relevance of this species or genus? Forgive me. Um, Mobiluncus is an organism that's often found in the vagina and it's quite often co-associated with Gardnerella vaginalis, especially in cases of bacterial vaginosis. What it does, what its function is, that's a little bit more of a gray area. Uh, It's sort of in the same category as uh, Prevotella bivia. We're not exactly sure why it's there, what it does. We know a couple of its functions, but it's a bit hard to answer other than the epidemiology that we have that it's co-located or um, co-associated with uh, certain other organisms. I know that doesn't really answer your question, but again, this is one of the situations where more research is needed. That's Well, that's exactly right. I, I guess at least we can flag it for, for future research. So yeah. what, what about probiotics then? Where do probiotics fit into all of this, given that some of the questions we sort of really got a question? I used to, I used to think, why are we not giving Enos, Enos, Enos as the, the premier, um, you know, let's say the, the person that goes in to set up household? Why aren't we giving that? I'm now really questioning the use of lactobacillus Enos, given that we don't know about the terrain. There's a, there's a couple of things I want to jump on here, Andrew. Thank you for that opening. And firstly, we need evidence-based probiotics. So probiotics that have a solid safety dossier that are well characterized, um, you know, approved by the regulatory authorities. That's another issue as well. But Mm. um, so that's the starting point. From there, again, as I said before, we need to look for the appropriate mechanisms of action that also have been demonstrated in hopefully clinical studies that can help within the various indications because we're talking about multiple different types of infections here or situations yeah. within the, the vagina. It could be vaginal dryness that is experienced by a postmenopausal woman. Yep. It could be, you know, uh, multiple bladder and vaginal infections that are just cycling in a premenstrual young girl. It could be a woman who is pregnant, who is undergoing, um, 
uh, antibiotic therapy for something and then, you know, has a couple of infections that come up. So yep. we're all talking different clinical indications and there you need really to match the the superpowers, if you will, of the bugs yeah. to what they're actually trying to do. And there that comes back again to the science and sort of the quality of the, the company they'll be producing them and the science that they have behind it to support their products. What about the route of application? We spoke earlier about the enteromammary pathway and there's some indication that bacteria are either they're transported to some extent um, or indeed they might influence uh, let's say systemic systems, you know, like interleukins and things like that to trigger a response in a distant part of the body. But what about route mm-hmm. of application, like direct route of application, vaginal pessaries, um, things like this, you know, um, douches, all of that sort of application? It's actually interesting you ask that because I talk with a lot of gynecologists and I actually find that their opinions are completely mixed. So in my network, I have sort of a group of gynecologists that prefers local applications, so yeah. a vaginal pessary, a capsule, uh, things like this. Yep. And then there are other gynecologists who prefer the oral application, which is more of a systemic route, as you said. And then it, the, the bacteria will come and enter the rectum, ultimately, hopefully, across the perineum, for example, and then enter the, uh, the vagina and potentially the bladder as well, depending on um, what urogenital infection the woman has. Women themselves are also a little bit mixed on what they prefer. Some groups find a local application to be working better for them, or they prefer it because they think it's it's working faster. They prefer the lower dose, for example, and the less number of times they have to apply it. Some women prefer the convenience more of an oral formulation. But as long as there is, for example, as long as you have a product that can show that it can get to the place that you want it to get and do what you want it to do, whether it's orally applied or vaginally applied, I think that's the key. I'm not certain that there is a strong enough difference to really say one is better than the other. We give an oral dose of a probiotic, you will inevitably get some sort of die-off in the stomach because that's one of the functions of the human stomach. Um, Mm -hmm. But then it's got to survive bile, it's got to survive shearing forces, the mixture of chyle, fibre, what it's going to feed, what other bacteria it comes into contact with and how those bacteria interact. And hopefully at the end of the anus, you're going to get that to move across from the perineum into the vaginal tract. That's a big ask. It's a treacherous journey. <laughs> so has that been demonstrated with oral dosing? We've been able to track certain uh, strains. I'm just going to speak about strains yes. now. So, for example, Lactobacillus reuteri RC14 or Lactobacillus rhamnosus GR1. Yeah. These are two particular strains that are often found together in formulations. And there is some nice evidence showing that these strains, when administered orally, can be found back in the vagina. We make the assumption, because nobody's ever studied this, but we make the assumption that they go across the rectum, the perineum, and into the vagina. But, I mean, there's some very fascinating work coming out of France that suggests that there's also a blood microbiome and that organisms travel through lymph. So, I mean... Let's let's go with the first route, the uh, rectal ascension, but let's also not rule out the fact that there might be other ways that they travel, especially given our earlier discussion regarding breast milk. So there there is data. When I first heard the enteromammary pathway, and it was researchers at the um, Madrid University, the um, Fernandez, Esther Jimenez, there's a few others. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I, I argued vehemently against this because I said, if you've got bacteria in the blood, you've got sepsis. Totally being ignorant no. of the concept of being transported in enclosed, what a monocyte, wasn't it? That it's engulfed in a monocyte and transported live through the blood into the lymph and then into the breast milk. I mean, this is a wild concept. You've just mentioned before an in utero um, bacterial, uh, live bacterial, um, you know, colonies. Uh, you know, this would go against all sort of previous concepts of the sterile inner environment of the body. Yes. And this is something that the microbiome world or the microbiota world is faced with, translating the idea that these previously forbidden sterile niches are not sterile. Yeah. And translating this to healthcare professionals, to to the average layperson, the non-scientist, I should say. And that's that's a bit of a challenge because we've been raised in a world that says, okay, germs are terrible. Yeah. Um, a clinician is always raised, you know, the only good bacteria is dead bacteria, unless you're a gastroenterologist. You know, so there's there's a lot of things that we're working against here. But I mean, the microbiome is not the cornerstone of health. It's part of health. It's mm. part of the story. Mm. And if you think about it on a just sort of all assumptions aside, if you think about it on a logical level, we are completely surrounded by microorganisms. So if an infant comes out of the womb unprepared to meet all of these microorganisms, they're not going to be in a very comfortable position for either their short life or the rest of their life. So it would make sense that in some way they're prepared for this symbiosis or the potential threats or challenges that would happen throughout life upon exposure to organisms. Okay, so let's go into some of these instances where they're not well prepared. You know, what can happen when you've got a vaginal microbiota that's way out of whack? Yeah, if you have a vaginal microbiota that's way out of whack, it can have a lot of different implications, not only for the woman, but if she is of reproductive age and has children or is pregnant, then also for the infant. And I, I think the poster child here would, with respect to the microbiome and dysbiosis for infants would probably be necrotizing enterocolitis or NEC. Yeah. And we have some very, very nice data with respect to probiotics and reducing overall mortality with NEC that's directly related to sort of restoring or correcting this dysbiosis that occurs in the first, you know, five to eight days. But we could do a whole other podcast on that one too, Andrew. Yeah, well, let's delve into that. In, indeed, let's talk about the bacterial implications with neonates on another podcast, because the other aspect I'd like to go into is vitamin K production, which really greatly interests me. Why humans have evolved to be vitamin K deficient at birth? Well, from a nutritional aspect, I mean, you have multiple forms of vitamin K and one of them, I think it's vitamin K1, but... K1, yeah, Kanaki. Yeah, indeed. But that's, that's actually produced by bacteria. That's right. Why whereas have we evolved? K2, <laughs> yeah, whereas vitamin K2, I think, is more of a, um, an animal-derived source. But yeah, this, this, there is so much that our gut microbiota does for us. Uh, vitamin synthesis, hormone synthesis, um, immune modulation. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. What about any wrap-up topics, um, wrap-up points that we need to make with regards to the vaginal microbiota? Can I offer one here? You know, if I if I had a lady who had recurrent thrush, I used to bomb it with uh, a betadine douche, which is a, a povidone iodine in 
sorry, iodine in povidone iodine. So um, I used to try and kill everything, reset the reset the landscape as if I was the god of the bacterial vag- vaginal landscape and try and recolonize with probiotics. Admittedly, back in those days, we didn't have a lot of these uh, commensals that we know about now, Jensenai, um, uh, Gasserai, Crispartis, et cetera. It was basically Lactobacillus acidophilus back then. How yep. arrogant of me. But but that's all I had. And I remember like we had some good recoveries in a few women, but there were other women that it just didn't do anything for. All we did was just, you know, scrape the landscape clean and not give them anything good to grow with. What should we really be looking at? What should be, how we sh- should we be intervening? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, caveat, I'm not a clinician. I think we said that already beforehand, but- Let's just keep that in mind. Yeah. My answer will be a little bit more on the <laughs> science side. And just one more word before I jump in is that science progresses, medicine progresses based on the knowledge that we have. And if we don't build on that, that's unfortunate. But yeah. if we use what we have at that moment, I think that's the best that can be expected of us. So don't beat yourself up for that, firstly. With respect to patients and handling patients, you mentioned thrush. We know with thrush, there tends to be, as I said before, an immunocompromised state. And if you take a more holistic approach, you know, there are other signs potentially within the body that you can also identify, hey, is this something systemically I can do as well as locally? Um, I've come across gynecologists who tend to try and do that, um, either with estrogen therapy um, and then probiotics, antibiotics or um, antimycotics in this case, are yeah mixed a mixed bag in terms of their efficacy but yeah. again it depends really what's in your guidelines not being a clinician the scientific answer would say try to find out as much as you can about the patient and their symptoms and how you could address that but we don't really understand from the microbiome perspective how we can influence the function in addition to the structure yet and that's coming it's it's a bit harder to really understand how to apply that to a patient at this moment because we know so little, especially about candida, um, albicans or uh, glabrata and so on, those types of infections. Can I ask, though, uh, a comment was made by a gastroenterologist in Sydney that the previous theory of candidiasis was that the candida grew in the bowel, in the large bowel, and then moved forward because of, you know, irritation or just, um, you know, locale and proximity mm-hmm. um, to the anus. And it moved into the vagina from there, given that you had a terrain that was going to favour growth. So, you know, whether it was the period of the cycle, whether it was local irritation, whatever. Um, and yet this gastroenterologist said they've looked at heaps and heaps of samples and they do not find candida growing in the colon. Well, I'm not so much aware of the work on candida within gastrointestinal environment. Uh, I do know that it can be found in certain places. I would imagine based on current sampling techniques, that's mostly in the proximal or distal colon. I'm not sure about the small intestine or the rectum, but within the vagina, it is a normal resident. It is a pathobiont or a commensal potentially. And candida is actually a really cool microorganism because it has two states, two morphologies. One is called yeast, and that's its more reproductive phase. And it has also a state called hyphae, and that's its more pathogenic virulent phase. And it switches between the two. 
And I mean, that's what makes it very unique because some antimycotics are targeting a protein that might be only upregulated on the surface of hyphae. You're right. Whereas within the yeast state, it can hide, it can reproduce, yeah. it can grow and things like that. It go dormant, exactly. And you asked also about the, the, the transport of this organism throughout the body. There's been some really cool rat studies that have shown that candida can actually leach on or latch on to other organisms um, within blood vessels, within the lymphatic tissue, and travel throughout the body. So, for example, they infected these rats with, uh, let me think how it was done. I believe it was a, a, a skin wound. Mm. Or they had an isolated sort of bolus within of an infection model, and they found that these candida had migrated ultimately to the kidneys of these rats. Wow. So th- there's some sort of microbial highway yeah. in the body that we're not aware of at all. And candida is a really fascinating organism, as I said, but it's also very opportunistic. And yeah. in the vagina, we find candida overgrowing when there's a lot of estrogen. We find it when there's low or high pH. We find it in multiple situations. So we don't really know why, but we know when. Yeah. I guess another question that I have just to, I guess, to wrap up is, (laughs) you know how we've spoken about the micro, the gut microbiome or microbiota and sampling that. But normally when we sample it, we have a fecal sample. Well, that's not sampling what's growing in the gut. That's what's sampling what's coming out in the feces. Is there any work? Has there been any work done on direct biopsy of the microbiota growing at various places throughout the human gut? There has been limited work, and there's quite some work that's been going on that I'm aware of um, right now. The challenge, as you sort of alluded to, Andrew, is that the small intestine is really difficult to access. Yeah. Um, there's, for example, a couple of companies that are working on technologies whereby you swallow this little capsule and you know it opens depending on pH changes or I don't know with some other signal, wow. and it'll take a sample and then wow. you pull it out and then you can you know analyze that. Yeah. Most of the data we have to this point is mostly f- is from um, uh, surgical patients. So different biopsies that have happened or uh, colon resections, uh, things like this. So gotcha. we have data from those types of patients. But I hope, I hope that soon enough we'll have the technology to be able to really understand what's going on in those other sort of more hidden areas of, of the gut. Because as you mentioned, you know, a fecal sample, depending on how you take it, is not really representative of not even actually the distal or proximal colon. Uh, there was a group, actually, I think it was in Belgium? No. But this, a group in Europe, anyways, that showed that there's actually a mucosal layer surrounding feces by the time it comes, you know, right towards the end and gets deposited in the rectum. And their sampling and analysis of the microbiota suggested that there was very little exchange of microorganisms between feces and the mucosal biofilm that was on the rectum, for example. Right. Suggesting that, you know, at a certain moment feces gets the bolus gets sort of encapsulated by this mucus layer yeah and that's that hey there's so much more to delve into and i cannot wait to do further podcasts with you jessica um but thank you so much for taking us through what you've taught us today really really important stuff thank you very much andrew for the opportunity it's it's been also my great pleasure to have this chat with you and i hope we can continue in a couple of more podcasts also to explore and try to translate this type of science for uh, for the rest of the people who are listening. This is FX Medicine.
I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The FX Medicine team would like to thank the enormous generosity of all our guests who have graciously donated their time, their expertise, and their stories of both triumph and adversity. Most of all, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for your continued feedback and support, and for giving us direction and purpose as we move forward together into the future.